0: Hello, welcome again to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today is May 10th, 2023, and I'm delighted to have someone who's been writing a lot about economic history, who's on the front lines of making sure that we know about um, classical liberalism, the economy, and, and how people deal with different situations throughout history. And it's none other than Amity Schlaes. Amity, welcome to the Let People Prosper show.
1: Glad to be here, Vance.
0: Great, great. Well, I'm really glad to have you on as well. Been a fan of your work and reading your writings for a number of years. So it's really good to have you on the program. Um, for the audience, I want to go over your bio real quick, um, just to make sure they have a good understanding of who you are as we're talking today. So Amity Schles is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, Coolidge, A Great Society, A New History, and The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive America, America's Crazy. Ms. chairs the board of the calvin coolidge presidential foundation a national foundation based at the birthplace of president coolidge the foundation's goal is to share coolidge with americans by hosting debate and events at the coolidge site and through newer media she is especially interested in education Ms. is winner of the hayek prize and currently serves on the jury for the prize sponsored by manhattan institute in 2002 she was co winner of the frederick bastiat prize international prize for writing on political economy and later chaired the jury for that prize over the years she has served at the Council for Foreign Relations and the George W. Bush Presidential Center, where she was one of four directors working on its 4% growth project. Curly Michelez appears in print in Forbes and National Review. A Magna laude graduate of Yale College, Michelez is married to fellow journalist and editor Seth Lipsky. The Lipskys have four children. So with all that said, um, Amity, the way I like to start off these discussions is what motivates you to do what you do each and every day?
1: Oh, history. Definitely. When I was very young, I worked at the Wall Street Journal. And uh, when you enter uh, the financial world, uh, you hear people refer to things like the SEC or the NLRB or the and then you say, where do those institutions come from? And in my impression, we have an insufficient understanding of the institutions that shape our lives. Uh, Joe Califano, said once, a, a Johnson uh, colleague and cabinet member later said, uh, we're living in Lyndon Johnson's America, by which he meant an America of institutions built by Lyndon Johnson. Well, that's true for all the presidents. So so I like to go back to history and figure out w- what we can learn from the moments when these institutions were built. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's exactly right. One of the ones that I was in is the acronym of OMB, Office of Management and Budget, you know, in the President's White House. And um, there are a lot of acronyms that are out there. (laughs) We almost need a book of some of those to make sure that we know what they are oftentimes. Um, You know, with your work at the Coolidge Foundation, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you do and and what the Coolidge Foundation does?
1: Oh, well, sure. And and as you may know, um, the OMB uh, was essentially established under a different name. Correct. In the Coolidge era by President Warren Harding when Coolidge was vice president through the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, because the president didn't have any oversight over money, really. uh, The way I like to explain it used to work was, imagine you have five children, and you tell them all they should get a job. And each child comes to you and says, I got a job. Now I need a car. You told me to get a job. And you say, all right. And if you see the kids one by one, and then you have five cars, (laughs) Right. Uh, right. And uh, there was the congressman would come with compelling bids for something and the White House would give it to them. And there wasn't uh, really a budget process where the president had a moment to take a breath and oversee what he was doing and rationalize some of his decisions and find efficiencies. That's what uh, Harding did. And Coolidge really exploited that OMB. It was a budget bureau at the time it was called in order to actually uh, uh, create a surplus so so the tool was there and the surplus did arrive
0: that's exactly right so at
1: the Coolidge foundation we we convey these values to younger americans uh a lot of times where parents children are not uh, college students are not quite happy with what they're getting at college so we try to um offer up what coolidge would have thought of various uh, policy issues in particular ways of living uh, for young people. So they're at least aware of Coolidge because unfortunately he he kind of gets skipped over uh, in secondary school history.
0: Yeah, it, it really is unfortunate. And thanks for the history too on the Bureau of the Budget, which was under the Treasury Department at one time, and then moved in and the White House, uh, administered the presidential office, uh, the executive office of the president.
1: I, I think um, for in some reason, maybe, you know, but I think for some reason, who's the White House president, the president's uh, financial advisor? That would be the Treasury, by by, you would think. So why did the president need this other OMB type thing? Uh, uh, Only they can know because Coolidge uh, and Harding also had a super Treasury secretary who did advise them, particularly on tax policy, Andrew Mellon. So I don't know why they felt this, maybe because the Treasury had its own interests, uh, so he need to, uh, a president need to be able to gauge the treasury's interests as well, and not have treasury be the arbiter. But I'm waiting for that uh, PhD thesis for someone, please. Yes. To write.
0: That's right. That's right. No, that's great. And wh- why don't we kind of get started then with uh, with Coolidge? You know, it kind of goes back to that time and in your work that you've been doing on this. And I mean, look, as we were talking about beforehand, is yeah, President Coolidge is one of my favorite presidents. Um, he's one of the ones who, as you mentioned, doesn't get a lot of notoriety. Nobody really talks about him that much. Right. Um, he's known as silent Cal, um, where he didn't maybe say as much. But if you look at his actions and the things that he did, the economy that happened, I mean, really was one of the first ones to say, along with Andrew Mellon, just Treasury Secretary, is to have be kind of a supply sider uh, in the sense of let's cut taxes, let's cut government spending. And we saw kind of the roaring 20s that happened. Um, but I'd love to hear your take about calvin coolidge and some of the things that you learned and, and things of that nature from from the book
1: oh absolutely I, I we did this backwards and that's my fault but i want to mention we uh the coolidge foundation The main way we acquaint young people with coolidge is through the coolidge scholarship process the coolidge scholarship is currently the most competitive in america it is harder to get than a Rhodes scholarship we have only four or so per annum and this year we have 4100 candidates it is an academic merit scholarship Um, and we do look at quantifiable measures of performance and knowledge. So it's very, um, it's traditional I would say in terms of how we review the candidates. So uh, one of the purposes of that scholarship um, uh, application is to acquaint young people with Calvin Coolidge. So we have two essays on Calvin Coolidge required to apply for our Coolidge scholarship. Um, and we hope people enjoy it and don't don't, don't think of the process as pain. Uh, Coolidge is a lovely guy, whatever your, your political inclination, you can find something to like in him. Coolidge was not, I would say, I, I wouldn't call him a supply-sider, um, it, but I, I don't want to impugn the motives of the supply-siders either or impugn them. Coolidge was a gold standard person and you have to give the monetary regime credit. The monetary regime, which at the time was a version of the gold standard, made it very pricey for the US to run a deficit. Because if other countries thought we weren't on sound financial footing, well, they would take their gold out of America, and gold was our monetary base. And that would force an automatic contraction on the US economy. So if, if you wanted to spare your voters a recession, a contraction, bank trouble, you had to balance the budget. I think Coolidge was naturally virtuous and he as good as Ronald Reagan or whatever. but but on top of that, you want to have a serious analysis of the gold regimes and there's insufficient appreciation for them, however imperfect. you know, conservative economics or free market economics is a battle between uh, among groups, a battle with multi multi uh, sort of three or four parties all. More like, let's say, a skirmish of people, right? Different views. And monetarists don't like that argument. Okay. The gold people don't like the monetarists and are mean to the monetarists. This is a a silly fight. Let's just go back and look and see what worked. In that period, in addition to the discipline of the requirement, right? And the strong incentive to balance your budget, Coolidge had that. The US was in a race with Britain to become the world's financial center. At that moment, we were ahead, but we hadn't won. The way we feel we have now, oh, God, we're the currency of reserve. Nothing bad could ever happen to us. We move with impunity. It wasn't like that then. Any minute, Britain could overtake us. And there are considerable advantages to being number one, as we see today here in the United States. When we do something wrong, we get forgiven. Uh, So Coolidge's culture, and he too, I think, was bent on sustaining America's recently acquired number one status. What he did was he said, I'm going to balance the budget and I'm going to cut taxes, both cut tax rates. Um, So he did balance the budget that came from his New England roots and also from his, you know, I mean, there we're talking temperament beyond the incentives and disincentives I've just described Um, and a a natural sense of, of frugality. You know, his father was a, lived in a farm town. Right. There wasn't they weren't in poverty because they had assets, but the assets were very hard to liquidate. It wasn't like a cash bank account. It was a cow or a house or a piece of farm equipment that needed repair, but cost a lot. It was worth the repair. So that's his cultural background. And then he'd been governor of Massachusetts. So he'd managed a state budget and governors know about budgets because they do often have to balance them. So there you are. Uh, but along with that, Coolidge understood that business needs to let America prosper, as you put it. Uh, business needs an environment that's not too bad. And uh, we won't say perfect, but not even you don't need optimal to, to you need not too bad, uh, and the weather needs to be the economic weather be, needs to be not too bad. And Coolidge's uh, the, the tax rates coming out of World War I, the top marginal rate of the income tax was over 70 percent. Uh, let's see, and if, uh, a second point is rarely made, and I only say this because you're more on the economic advance is it wasn't clear what the capital gains tax rate was. And capital gains tax, very important for business. Business will go on strike if the cap gains rate is too high. And they had a strike. It was called the capital strike in the early 20s. Um, because some people thought, remember all these taxes are young, that maybe cap gains should be taxed as ordinary income, which would mean they'd be subjected to that 77% or 73% or 70% rate. Well, uh, So two clarifying things, I want to give Harding some credit here. Harding and then Coolidge did. Harding was president before Coolidge. He was elected. Coolidge was his vice president. Did was, um, along with establishing the Bureau of the Budget, um, the Treasury and Congress and the White House agreed, by and large, through law and regulation and determinations, that the cap gains rate should be about 12.5%. That was an enormous release relief to markets. No, in theory, cap gains should be zero. Didn't matter as long as it's set at a certain rate. That—that's uh, the question, you know. And a lot of us look at the cost of uncertainty. I mean, the main thing about Coolidge was uncertainty was reduced, and then Coolidge Harding, and then Coolidge said, "We're going to take taxes down as fast as we can," and they did take over many, a number of tax cuts, they had to do it slowly and with great contests in Congress. They did get the top marginal rate on the income tax down to 25% and also cut rates for lower earners. Um, And uh, if you have a mind to write a dissertation about this, the statistics of income from the 20s are a regular, I don't know, Michelangelo for tax people. They are a work of art because Mellon was a serious man and a serious financier. So his taxes were just gorgeous. Uh, You know, the way he displayed it, SOI, they're still there if the Treasury hasn't taken them down, which I don't think they will, for you to peruse and see that when they cut the rate, of course. Um, and this is gets at the supply side question. Um, modern supply siders talk about when you cut the rate, you get more activity, and you narrow how much you lose, or you even make more than you would have before. That was definitely the truth in the twenties when they cut the tax rates; it, activity increased. So there were not the revenue losses you would expect from doing a static analysis on paper.
0: That's great, and, and that I was think- a
1: long answer, but no. for econ.
0: No, that was great. It was, it was good. And I'm glad you went through that because there were there's a lot from that period that most people either don't know or don't understand. And, and what was interesting too, I believe it's right, is that you had spending was either cut or stayed about flat from the time of Harding to the end of Coolidge, um, which is well, I, extraordinary. I, I
1: can't remember about Harding, but I, I think yeah. he did cut the budget. And so did Wilson, by the way, coming out of the war. Mm-hmm. He made a big war, World War I, after the war. But um, in terms of peacetime presidents because coolidge was president we should have said that earlier he's number 30. uh and he was president from 1923 when harding passed away to 1929 march they had inaugurations in march then 67 months or so the budget was no larger when he left than when he came in and that is the stunning feat because the economy grew at about four percent real and the population grew so you know where vance used to work they would say spending per capita right often because you have to look at how big the economy is or how many people there are It, it it Spending per capita went way down because population went up. But just spending dollar for dollar, year over year, real or nominal, it it was lower when he left. And that was quite a quite a feat.
0: It really is, especially given today, you know, we're running these two trillion dollar deficits and thirty one point four trillion dollar national debt and everything else. I mean, it's it is quite the feat. And it is one of the reasons why Coolidge is one of my favorite presidents. I mean, there was a lot of other pro- things that were going on at the time. Um, Secretary Mellon. I've also read his book, Taxation, which is a really good book um, that talks a lot about his philosophy on taxation and everything else. And I think that really set the stage for what could have been a lot of good pro-growth policies for the foreseeable future. Um, unfortunately, then we had a period of time where, um, you know, that came in with the Great Depression. Um, and I think maybe we, sh- we can move there next to the Forgotten Man. Was there anything else that you would like to mention about Coolidge before we moved on?
1: Oh, absolutely. I like okay, him great. very much. I would love to find more supporters for the Coolidge Foundation, which is yes. basically an alternate universe to explain to young people, common sense economic. It's not a college, uh, but it is an educator and we have high school debates and this year actually kids are debating Coolidge, the proposition Coolidge should be moved to top 10 rank among presidents. Currently Mm -hmm. currently he's I think 24. So both sides, it'd be really fun. So if you want younger people to get more knowledge in a serious environment, uh, we're here to do that. Uh, And our scholarship the, the popularity of our scholarship, which is basically young people ho- going like homing birds to an older world because they don't yeah. like the current world and their parents, please support the scholarship because... It, it's a beacon in the sky to honor merit and Coolidge values. Okay. That's great. The question the question about Calvin and you go CalvinCoolidge.org or just um, yeah. at, or email our office. Um, the we don't take uh, last of all I'll say we don't take government money from the federal government currently excellent uh, we have in the past and that's because Coolidge was kind of uncomfortable with that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he we he would take he would work with the state and we work with the honored state of Vermont. If you want to visit us in Vermont? We have the most vice, most beautiful uh, setting there, uh, but we don't really work with the federal government in terms of taking grants right now, and we're proud of that, but it makes us all the weaker in yeah. terms of finance. Okay, so the question people always ask uh, it, uh, about Coolidge is did he cause a great depression mm-hmm. and you want to, and I noticed, um, let's see, um, you know, various economists will drop that. I won't say their names it, you, uh, when they feel like it. Uh, they'll say, yeah, he kind of did. We do have a monograph, um, by the foundation on our website, addressing that for your students. Hmm. But the answer is, uh, if you want to answer like Coolidge to Coolidge cause a great depression, the answer is no. Right. And if you want to delve into that, of course we can.
0: Yep. No, I, I agree. I agree with you, and I think it was a lot from what happened with the next president, (laughs) with uh, with Hoover and the things that happened, um, along with the uh, Smooth-Hawley tariff um, act that went into place, um, along with raising taxes, a lot of the subsidies that were going on. They started running deficits. They started raising taxes. So a combination of those things, um, in my view, slowed down the economy, uh, along with some of the monetary things as well, as you had the, the Federal Reserve, reducing the money supply at a, at a rapid rate. There were a lot of things that were going on. And then that contributed, in, in my view, to the Great Depression. I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have on that, which really kind of gets into your another one of your great books, um, The Forgotten Man. And, and so I, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on maybe about the Great Depression, um, about the you know the book, The Forgotten Man, and some other things that you'd like to discuss uh, along those lines.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, the Forgotten Man was published in 2007. I'm very honored people still read it. And uh, actually, I, I, I should just uh, amend a bit. The Forgotten Man graphic is a cartoon book I wrote. And it was drawn by a brilliant artist named Paul Revoche. It has 1,800 images from the Great Depression, which you can break into slides and teach with, by the way, uh, because a lot of us teach with PowerPoint. Uh, um, And that that book is the cartoon version of Forgotten Man. I just love it. it um, sometimes people get upset when they order the wrong one. But I just I just love it. And I could say that because I didn't draw it. Paul Rebosch did. <laughs> I just helped out with the words. Um, OK, the, the Forgotten Man was a, um, a book about the Great Depression. The, uh, I'll say two things. One, where does the title come from? And then two, what about what happened in the Great Depression? Um, as, as people know, President Roosevelt, um, before he was president, When he was campaigning, gave a speech on the Lucky Strike Hour, where he spoke of the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid. So that would be poor man. We we want to help him. Of course we do. We have charitable souls. It's Christian, whatever. You know. I, I don't mean to be flippant, but that that seems uncontroversial mm-hmm. uh and the guy who was involved there were many people involved in writing that speech but one was ray moley who i like very much he's one of the hidden figures who changes lives kind of like john taylor of stanford he's an economist he was a high official in the government but he's also changed a lot of lives and nobody knows that by showing leadership to people um the you know he's a nobel candidate um, or, uh, any, anyway, this Moli changed a lot of people's lives, including mine, even. So, Moli noticed all this, and Roosevelt gave the speech, Forgotten Man. But the original Forgotten Man phrase was not Franklin Roosevelt's. It came from a philosopher who lived in the, taught mainly in the preceding century, William Graham Sumner, William Graham Sumner of my alma mater, Yale College. And Sumner said, had a little algebra where he said, A, the person at the top, I suppose, uh, or a citizen, A, wants to help X, the man at the bottom. That would be. So does B, maybe. So A and B get together, and they pass a law to help X. Okay. But in the process, they have to coerce C. Some random fellow, who's going to be paying taxes for this, and who might not benefit from the law and may even be hurt. And Sumner said, C is the forgotten man, the regular taxpayer who is hostage to a sometimes good but often dubious government project got up by A and B, by his peers or someone fancier than he is. And Sumner said, C is the forgotten man, the man who pays, the man who prays, the man who is not thought of. So is X your forgotten man, the very poor man? the homeless man, or see the forgotten man. And all through the years, they debated this, and they were well familiar with both, though Roosevelt kind of ignored the C concept. Um, and that helps to explain the political economy of the New Deal. Roosevelt isolated groups of exes who were really in trouble, indeed and did something for them at cost to see. And the C was not only the average citizen, but the US economy. It, if you look at what happened in the Great Depression, uh, you want to be sure and ask yourself, is a crash always a depression? Of course, there was a crash in 1929 and 30. And the course, the market went too high and the market went down very dramatically. But crashes like that, and there have been dramatic crashes, like the one of 29, every few years uh, in Coolidge's life, for example, there were five or six, had led to pretty quick recoveries. Uh, You know, Jim Grant, the author, has a book called The Forgotten Depression, about a dramatic crash in the early 20s that nobody remembers because it was so short. What made the depression, the depression was a duration and the severity of the unemployment, 10 years, 10 years of one in 10 or more, right? sometimes 20% unemployment. And what I discovered, uh, and here I'm not alone, was it, every year there was a different main reason that the recovery chose to stay away. It could be monetary, it could be international, we've all studied these things. It could be banking, it, but but uh, it definitely wasn't Monetary and banking alone that made the whole 10 year tragedy. So, what is it that made the tragedy? There's some other factors later. One understudied, I recommend the work of Lee Ohanian and Harold Cole. And this was that the labor price was too high. Uh huh. The government forced yep. the labor price up. Pay people well so they'll spend. A theory that that wasn't what you do when the government is forcing you to pay more than you have you lay off a few people or don't rehire so fast. Mm-hmm. Just basic common sense. A- a- anyway, uh, the two factors in the book I looked at were economic uncertainty and the cost for the economy to that, um, and the labor. Those are the two new areas I was particularly interested. But if you're going to say, writ large, dear children, what made the depression different? Government intervention in different forms. Arbitrary, often wrong headed intervention. So you think of an elephant in a room or whatever metaphor that comes to your mind. And my favorite economist who is way undertaught was a guy named Benjamin Anderson, who was n- not exactly like some side figure. He was the chief economist of Chase Bank. Uh, and he wrote a notice every week. You can go back and get the newsletters. And his work is summarized in a book called Economics in the Public Welfare, Benjamin Anderson, published in the late 40s. Anyway, he said, look, Kinder children the depression was caused by the government playing god and when the government failed playing god the recommendation and the thought was government m- must just play god more vigorously and i found that absolutely captured the government played god and when it failed that, trying that out it played god more vigorously it, 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 so it's a wonderful period to study when you think about how much should government do and what can the private sector do
0: yeah. No, that, that's great. And and you're right. I mean, we had these government failures. We often hear about market failures, but people often forget the government failures, uh, which oftentimes are, are greater, are worse on people and the economy than any sort of perceived market failure that there might have been. So I really like the way that you put that overall. And and I, I agree with you. I think that the the programs that FDR put in place and um, the minimum wage, you know, it's there, Social Security Act. You know, there's a lot of things that were expansions of government that – it started small and then continued to grow to what we have today. Um, and want the, to the well, thir-
1: say one other thing. Yeah, um, I mean, when you don't, when you go after an industry, there, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna throw up or enjoy it. But I, there's a line from a Taylor Swift song that some people I know like. <laughs> it goes, "Don't you worry your pretty little mind." People throw rocks at things that shine. Hmm. people throw and that is true people throw rocks at things that shine so when you have an industry that really charms you and that would be tech now people believe whatever they say are deeply charmed by google they're charmed by twitter they're charmed by new ai that they will write an essay for them they think this is kind of neat right um it makes them also want to destroy it people throw rocks at things that shine uh, and you see that in the antitrust movement today Antitrust is basically a bogus concept, as far as I can tell. I, yeah. I, I really don't. It's not rules based. Usually, it's arbitrary. Right. That's right. that's the heart of the problem. So, um, in the '30s, there were, you know, think of today. People sort of think, oh, there's some some cool pharma things going on, or, you know, whatever was charming and also had the potential, by the way, to pull the economy out of the doldrums. That, the administration went after, yeah. and that's the lesson for us too in particular, electricity, utilities. Well, America was electrifying. Let's take over electricity on the pretext. Poor poor people in the South don't have it yet. Who was to say, you know, we don't have that experiment. We we have to run a pitiful counterfactual. The the South wouldn't have electrified itself without the Tennessee Valley Authority. That's what the companies involved thought was happening, Commonwealth Mm -hmm. and Southern in particular, led by Wendell Wilkie. So... So they went after, that is the administration under Franklin Roosevelt, went after things that shone, so to speak, whatever had rich people, all right, that's fun to punish rich people, but whatever also had the prospect of pulling the economy out of the downturn. And by the way, one should mention for today, energy, which pulled us out of the last big market crash. So so people throw rocks at things that shine, and yep. we have to think, what is the cost of that?
0: Yep. I hadn't thought about it that way, yeah. <laughs> but now now I won't get it out of my head. <laughs> so that's good. Um, in the last few minutes we have here, Amity, um I really like for you to talk a little bit about the Great Society, another one of your good books that's that's really out there that I hope the audience will go out and buy and ch- and read these books is are really great. You learn a lot of detail. We're not able to do it all the service that we should here um, within our our time frame. But I think that this is another one that I'd really love for you to kind of explain, maybe in just a couple of minutes. I know that's tough, but as we're tough. I wrapping talk up too here. Long
1: the great society is about the 60s and so that's the next impulse after the new deal impulse comes the great society and the great society was not a bestseller it was a cartoon book that's what i was getting at before i wish it would be i love it um i tried hard um what did i learn about so we're talking about the period with really with with jfk uh, and then, of course, Lyndon Johnson, who used that phrase and delivered a famous speech at University of Michigan. Great society, not just good, great. And then Nixon, too. Uh, and if you look at Richard Nixon, the data, actually, he expanded programs faster than Johnson. So this is a bipartisan spending spree. I guess the surprise, you know, it was a period where we spent a lot and thought there'd be no cost, and the cost was a decade of purgatory called the 70s when uh, a mortgage, well, let's just say you had two fewer bedrooms in your house than you expected, because mortgage was, even in the 80s, 15%. So uh, we had to pay for that. Uh, and uh, I really liked looking at this decade. I liked the people. They meant well. They didn't understand often what would happen. None of us does sometimes when we're trying on a new project. Uh, but if there were one big surprise, I'd say that something I didn't know when I went to look at the Great Society was the influence of organized labor. And it, 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 as we, as most, um, particularly in Texas, people will know, there are two kinds of state in America, their right-to-work state and their more heavily unionized state. A state has to opt, uh, excuse me, state has to opt, opt out of unionization of the heavy kind, and it can do that. And that is Uh, under the Taft-Hartley Act, which is a law from the 40s. That has allowed real natural experiments where we can see the results, not a counterfactual. And the result has been, by and large, and you look at the back of the book, that guess what? Less unionized states did better. It wasn't just that the advent of air conditioning or the people like sun or to golf. or It was also, it's easier to create a job in a less unionized state. In the 60s, of course, this little loophole, this opportunity for a state to opt out. The unions, particularly George Meany of the AFL-CIO, recognized that it was an existential threat to them, the right to work. And they came this close to killing it. There was, there was a legislation. The president was behind it. The president had committed to it. That was Johnson. At, but there was a filibuster led by Everett Dirksen of Illinois, who was a big civil rights warrior. Many may know that name, Dirksen Building Right. There was a filibuster, repeal of right to work, did not succeed. And that was an event of enormous importance to the U.S. economy. It was like becoming like Germany or staying America. Because we did not repeal right to work, we had, by and large, the opportunity for freer companies subsequent to the 60s. But it could have gone the other way. History is very chancy, as historians say.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that book as well. I mean, there's a lot of uh, wealth of knowledge that's in there and the events that were happening. And, and to your point, I think you're exactly right. Under President Nixon, the expansion of government was um, greater. And you don't always hear that compared to under LBJ. Um, but there was a, a massive growth of government during that period. And it's, it's quite fascinating just to kind of go back through our discussion we've had today of Coolidge and kind of reining in government, trying to make sure it doesn't grow. And We saw the roaring 20s, the expansion of government from Hoover and then, and then FDR and the Great Depression that we had there, then the Great Society and the lessons that we should learn from that and then the 70s that were the result of that. Um, and now today, we're facing a lot of those issues that I hope we can learn from the past. And that's why it's so great to have you on the program, Amity, because I don't think we're learning the lessons that we should from those times before. And so um, just for the last minute here what would you um, like to say is the last words for the audience
1: oh i just want to say thank you um i mean the main issue (laughs) for parents and us is the history of the 20s what is that well it's told by the great gatsby right that is the number one history book on the 20s yeah that your son or daughter will confront you with So you have to counter that. And first way you counter it is recall that the Great Gatsby was published in 1925 and written in 1924. So it it certainly could have been describing the 29 crash, the way Mm. teachers think it's describing the crash of the early 20s from which the U.S. economy recovered. So if uh, just find ways to look into the data, this is not right, left, fight, fake news yeah the data tell the story the data are there the evidence is there there was nothing um unsolid about the growth of the 20s it, 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 it or let's say there was nothing it, it was very real there were pockets of speculation florida real estate you know but by and large the 20s were a memorable wonderful decade and don't let anyone take that away from you with any great Gatsby talk
0: Well, I I certainly won't. won't. Um, Thank you, Amity. Uh, Thank you for everything that you're doing. God bless you and your family. And and for the audience, thank you all for listening today. I hope you'll rate this a five-star rating and share it with your family and friends. Go out and purchase some of these books. I think there's some great books that you're going to learn a lot of information and be sure to check out the Coolidge Foundation. Until next time, let people prosper.